The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Hello, friends. I'm your host, Chris Thrill. I'm a former Royal Marines commando. I've adventured for better and sometimes worse across 80 countries on all seven continents. Welcome to the Bought the T-Shirt podcast. Paul, how are you, mate? I'm very good. Good. The apocalypse is treating me well. (laughs) (laughs) I feel the same. I I don't know if you're supposed to say that, but, um, you know, it's... um, I think because I work from home, it probably doesn't affect me as much as it maybe does some people. But then I also think happiness is, you know, it's inside your head. So, yeah, is that what you found? It's all right for me. <clears throat> so I'm very lucky where I live. So I'm down on the quay in Exeter now. So it's a nice setting. It's just like we just moved it, and then all the pubs and stuff shut. So that was a bit of a shitter last year. And then so just that keeps me happy. And I'm just mucking along. I've got loads of projects I need to be getting on with, but since the world's in shutdown, it's just become a bit difficult. So I'm just getting really good at FIFA and boozing, really. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Let's come on and talk about what, what your projects, because um, I know that I, for one, would be fascinated to hear what you're getting up to. Can we go, should we go back um, to the beginning? Is that best? Yeah, go for you, it, mate. You can talk about any anything that you you want on my podcast, but it's it's I don't want to like drag you through the same old story that I'm sure you've told it loads and loads. But feel free to put any slant on that you want. You know, um, oh, where, where do I start? I mean, like I say, from the start was probably when I decided to join the core, um, and the circumstances of that were a bit odd, should we say? When like, I was. 15 living in Bristol was involved in gangs and stuff like that I mean it's not like London gangs or anything like that but for Bristol it's pretty rough and uh, I was debt collecting for um, for a local drug dealer and uh, we went me and my mate went to collect this money one day off all these crackheads and uh, I was like nah just say that then there's loads of them and so we phoned up our employer shall we say and he said look this ain't happening he rocked up in the old um, knuckleless driving gloves and just did some like fucking ninja shit. And I was like, whoa, what the fuck this? And I said, where did he learn that? He said, oh, he was a Marine for 10 years. That's it. I was pretty much sold. I, like, I want to be like that. I'm very impressionable. And I needed to change my, my ways as well, to be honest. I mean, I was I was on a one-way ticket to prison for the sort of things I was up to. And you know, from the age like 13 to 15, I was just a shit bag. So I say 13 to 15, 13 to 37, whatever I'm now. But yeah, so I, I made a decision to join the Corps. And then... So he got laughed at, mocked for all you'll know in the last two days. And then, yeah, 16 years later, I retired. Mm. It's funny because watching what, 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 what was, was it Commando on the front line? Was that the name of the document, this documentary series? The one I was featured yeah. in? No, it was, um, oh, what was it called? Uh, Royal Marines Mission Afghanistan was one that uh, Chris Terrell did. Okay. Because yeah. on, on that, you were kind of the, uh, you epitomised the spirit of a Royal Marine in, in 
in every capacity. I don't I don't know how much you realise that, but I, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm quite, I was quite annoyed that they killed me off after episode two, but you know, I mean, it's just these these things happen in TV. But uh, um, did that yeah, one, we, did that one include the bang, or was that another documentary? I, I did see the commando that wouldn't die. Yeah, that was that was a follow up thing about two years later or a year later that was. Um, but yeah, the actual thing that was uh, the six part um, Romney's mission Afghanistan. I was in the first two episodes of that, just doing what we do sort of thing. And I, I got um, from the general public, people were very appreciative because obviously at the end of the second episode, it sort of freeze framed on me after I said it's just not if but when, and then obviously I was blown up. But um, yeah, so all the general public were really nice and kind, really. But the lads being lads were just giving me shit for like, I don't know, one lad gave me shit because I mean, hell, I done up during a firefight. And I was like, well, I had more important things to do. And the pink pants thing, that wasn't me. Everyone thinks it was me. It wasn't. It was a lad called Tats, who was called, who called on it on the show. I can't remember. He had a, he had a suit in them because he was a sniper. I was like, fuck off, mate. But yeah, so that was the only thing that I got my goat was like, people were saying I was wearing pink pants on Central. It wasn't me. It was him. So I just want to put that straight. <laughs> Yeah, but yeah it, was, it was it was good though. I mean, I think to be fair, like it was quite well received. Well received, and say so the follow up one, uh, yeah, that was I think Chris just followed me around for a little bit when I was in my recovery and uh, the first Invictus Games as well. So, I mean, all, all in all, it was I've learned a lot from well the first one. I didn't really have a choice in because I was still obviously serving, but. Um, the second time around, I've learned an awful lot about how productions are done and and how things can get misconstrued. Like oral contract isn't worth the paper fucking written on. So I've learned a, lot, a few things about that as well. Mate, it's in this game, it's once bitten, like forever fucking shy or whatever the expression yeah. is, you know. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I've just, I've just, um, I do a, a, a bit of life coaching for young men, and I, I just. I, I try to get it across like everything you see in the media. It's just a lie. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's someone else's version of the truth. That's that's, and it's there for, you know, it's there to manipulate the public into thinking certain in a certain way. So yeah, I, I can see how you could feel. <laughs> I can see how people fall foul of it. So just, can you just explain for our people watching or listening who Chris Terrell is and why he's, was quite a significant figure. Um, in, so Chris Terrell, was, uh, he's been a filmmaker for, for years and years. Um, he first came across the um, the sort of core, if you like, when I can't remember, I think it was uh, Command on the Front Line, I think that was what it's called, when he um, sort of went, so he, he embeds in, in the surroundings he's in, those films he makes. I think he went to prison or something in Russia for a bit. A bit. He does some cool stuff. Um, but he embedded himself with a recruit troop in training and then followed them out to Afghanistan. Um, so then he sort of got an honorary Green Beret. And then so he sort of had close ties to the Corps and, and also other military um, branches as well. Like, and he's just done something on the, the Navy, I think, as well. Um, yeah, he does some good stuff, to be fair to him. Um, he, he's, uh, he's, he's a very good at what he does, yeah. So he went through training at 55 to... And filmed that himself. was it, yeah, yeah. Fifty-five-year-old commanders. Fuck that. <laughs> I mean, not for me. I'm not sure because, like, for my fiftieth birthday, 
I'm sorry, people listening, if you've heard this before, but I, I did a quadruple Ironman. So I did four Ironmen back to back, you know, in one go. Um, and there was a point to this story, but no. The, and I know I did eight weeks training for it. Having I did a triathlon eight weeks before that, right? And I failed it. I, yeah. I didn't fail. I came, I came last. <laughs> yeah. I came last in my first ever triathlon. It was an Olympic distance. And I was I was third to last out the swim. Everyone that hadn't overtaken me overtook me on a bike. And then they tried to stop me doing the run because I was so slow, right? So I thought, all right, I know what I'll do. It's my birthday, my 50th in eight weeks' time. I'll do four Ironmen back to back. And I, I just want to show people, you know, your mind is everything. It's your mind, yeah. your mind and your body work work together. Yeah, I think what I'm I think, I think commando test wise, I think you could smash them at any age, really. Because, uh, you know, like you say, if you've done it once, well, especially if we've done it once, you're like, yeah, I know this is going to be shit, but at least I know I, my body will do it, even if it's broken. But I just think for the 30, 32 weeks it is now, 32 training at 55 and not picking up any niggles is, you know, because that's what sort of breaks guys down. I mean, if you're from Joe Sibby, I mean, I don't know the exact sort of um, training, I don't think he did like full recruit training, like max dances, fucking section attacks and all that sort of thing. But I think the fizz stuff he'd done. But like, yeah, I just think as a 55-year-old, imagine, can you imagine being like going on exercise and then coming back doing like lectures and shit and then just like trying to, I mean, at 55, I mean, I've struggled staying awake now and I'm in my late 30s, but fair play to anyone who, who gives it a crap. Yeah. You take your uh, your disability scooter, I think, and... Uh... I was saying this the oh, other day. You, you put you put your webbing in the front and <laughs> <laughs> honestly, like the whole disability thing. That car, that's a bit of a joke, isn't it? Like, well, mate, you've been there more than anyone. What? What? I I saw you. Didn't you post something? I saw you say something a while back about. I, and I know Cassidy Little talks of the same thing. People look at you. They assume they assume you're able bodied, and then they. You know, they tear you down a strip for using a parking, you know, disabled parking <laughs> bay or something, and then you roll up your trouser leg, and then they shut up. Yeah, I mean, I've I've had stand up rows with like seventy year old women in fucking Tesco car park before. But I got out of the car once, um, like two two stories spring to mind. I got out of the car once. Uh, I was with my my eldest daughter, and uh, just parked in sale bay as you do, threw the badge on the on the dash, and went to walk into the shop. And this, I didn't even hear what this woman said, but um, she um, she had a go at, she said something to my daughter, as it, and I didn't know what she said. And then my daughter turns around and says, well, he became disabled for, um, for putting his life on line for our country, not for um, not for bad dietary decisions like you have, because she's a big fat bird. Ah, <laughs> ah, ah, I thought it was hilarious. And another time, I, I can see how people would, would get a bit like pissed off because... The other time when I got sort of shouted at from a distance was um, I was in a rush. So I pulled up to the, in, again, it was Tesco in Exeter, and um, pulled in. I was in my Aston Martin. So it looked a bit suspect. I was probably 30 at the time. So I pulled into um, Sable Bay, winged the badge in, and literally ran into the shop. And as I came out, I goes, what the fuck do you think you're doing parking there? Like, oh, mate. I said, I know it looks bad. So I just rolled my leg in it. Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I just jumped in the car and fucked off again. <laughs> Yeah, my God. I spoke to Matt Disney the other day, and he, I think he's the first person I met that he said, our oh, training was really, 
really easy. I think he he, he was referring to the physical stuff. <laughs> yeah, I can. Yeah, I agree with that. I, like, I didn't find it too um, physically demanding because I was fit. I boxed since I was twelve. Played football, cross country, rugby, and all that sort of things. So I was quite fit anyway. Um, so yeah, I didn't. Ne- I was never like um, fitest in the troop rugby, but I didn't find it that that difficult really. It's more the like admin side I really struggled with. So I was only 16 when I joined and like things that you take for granted now, like, you know, ironing your shirts and shit like that. I'd never done that before. My mum used to do everything for me. So like I was like, what the fuck? But I think that's where you first, where I first noticed you could lean on people straight away. I, was like, I remember I was in foundation. There's a lad called Hugh Markham who was in my troop. And um, he, um, he was um, uh, a reservist before he joined the regular corps. So he was like, all over it and came to admin and stuff and he really helped me out in the first few weeks but yeah I think um, I, on the whole you haven't got his physical you haven't got his phone number mate have you <laughs> I don't know what he, if he, he went SF 15 years ago so I don't know what he's doing now and um, I get asked this a lot gets many 15 year olds message me and say should I join at 16 or should I go to uni or you know or college or, or should i get more life experience will yeah. i will i get brainwashed or it's some some combination of that com- conversation what would you yeah, say I, actually i get it all the time and so my twin boys are 16 in december so they've got like seven months to 16 and they both want to join the core now i've told them i said it depends on in this face if you're solid right then I suppose joining at 16 ain't going to hurt if you can pass the sort of written test um, because there's no point going on to do A-levels if you're just going to fail them anyway. Um, but I've told my boys to... Meaning, to um, solid meaning a bit not too bit good stupid, right? Yeah. bit simple, yeah. Um, but saying that, even a solid, you know, I call them solid, even if you are thick, shall we say, you've still got to pass the, the, um, the written exam to get into the core, which is, you know, it's the hardest one out there. Um, so like, I've told my boys... I said, wait till you're 18, do your A-levels first, um, you know, because they may change their mind. Um, and also, I may get flipping shot down first, but I've told my, my, my twins as well, if they're going to join, like, don't waste your time grabbing it because there's nothing going on in the world at the moment. I said, join as an officer. Because mm. um, I think, um, you know, if you're not, not going to make a full-blooded career out of it, you know, uh, so they both said they won't, they said they want to do it for a few years. I said, go in as an officer, get some experience like that. Um, because I was just be trapped like shit and being the duty sprog within cleaning gash up, cleaning shit up all the time is not going to be much fun. But if you're going to make a career out of it, I think joining as a as another rank to be the way ahead. I, my, that was my sort of loose career plan. Was when I hit thirty, I was going to go late officer entry. Um, obviously, got blown up, so that's the scarp of the plans. Because even though I say that, say even though they they were looking out for younger. Um, SOLE officers because um, the the sort of path people were taking was like sergeant majors, regimental sergeant majors. They were getting to the end of their careers and then transferring over to officer. So they were looking for younger guys. So I think they they lowered the age down to twenty eight, and the criteria was just done a junior command course or something. So I did my um, in unit AIB uh, two thousand nine. I think I did it. Uh, so I was all under the radar I didn't tell anyone because the lads had fucking lynched me but like so I was going to go to the dark side early on because my body was even before it became proper fucked like my body was hanging out you know I was only like 28 I think and by the time I got blown up and you know my knees were gone my hips were bad my back 
I was in rag order, but that's because I've been chasing tours around my whole life. So that's why my body sort of just was giving up the ghost. Did you say chasing what around? Chasing the tours. Okay. Yeah, the op tours, yeah. Yeah. And when they lowered the age and you could become an officer younger as a, as a one of the ranks, did you still have to go for what they called an SD commission, meaning it was basically a desk job, or could you go and lead a troop? Yeah, so apparently, um, so uh, at the time, you could the only sort of troop um, command you could do was um, a recruit troop down in Limstone, which I thought would have been all right anyway. Uh, but they were mainly like um, the uh, motor transport department, um, you know, the quartermaster stores, and all. they were pretty shit jobs, to be fair. But then that, that would have suited me because I was just planning on seeing my last 10 years out behind a desk, sort of bumping up the pension and stuff. But then I did hear, I don't know if it was true, that they were offering, for the younger guys with a bit more about them, um, they were offering up, I think there was one per unit and also one um, uh, SFSG as well, which were um, troop command jobs. So I heard, I don't know if that's, obviously I, I left in the midst of also, I don't know how it works out in the end. Mm. Wow. Do you think, I mean, I never, I, I just say it's sort of how long is a piece of string to when I got a 15 year old asking me, should I join or should I go into it? I always say, well, life experience is never a bad thing. But then again, you can fart around in life, not really achieving a great deal. Whereas in the core, you, it, it, it gets you off to a start in, in several ways. Not, not every, it's not all brilliant, but it's like the cart and a horse, isn't it? It's almost an impossible question to answer. Yeah, I think it, it, it's a big thing what your own personal circumstances are like. But for me, when I was 15, I was just close to going to prison, so I had to do something different. You know, for there are other people, like you, you'll know, you, you get people from all over the Commonwealth joining the court. And like one lad in my recruit troop, John Hawkshaw, he was 32 and was an investment banker in City. He just chinned it all off to to join the court. There was even, a, 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 I was an instructor down at Limstone, there was a recruit in training who worked on the um, the large hydron collider, whatever it's called, in CERN. He was like some like Gucci flipping professor, like doing like gnarly stuff, chinned it off, not to be an officer, just one of the lads, grabbing it up. I was like, fucking fair play to you. Some, it's just some people it appeals to it at different stages of their life, you know. Yeah. I think for a 15-year-old, here's a big decision to make. Um, Did you, I mean, you looked the part, Paul. You certainly were, were what are you were like my type of someone that gets in and smashes it up a bit when the need be. Because I'm going to say this, people might not might not want to hear it, but I remember when things went bang in Northern Ireland, some people just went to rat shit. You know, they just um, yeah, it's just like they um, you could see them panicking and and uh, but. You yeah, you seem like you was on top of the job. Did you feel like you had your own mind during your time in the Marines? Did you always feel like your own person? Hundred percent. That's why, like, you know, I find, so I'm, I've sold um, my um, property out, out in the country, sort of, and uh, I was going through stuff the other day, uh, cleaning up stables, and I found one of my old um, reports, Raw's report, and like. <laughs> The things I used to get on my reports were always the same. It was like break glass in time of war was one of the comments I had. And um, even though his camp life isn't the best, you know, he's exemplary when he's in the field. Because I I think we all can fall foul of like camp life, you know, when you're on on, on base, just like dicking around. And um, 
but I did used to, I used to love it though. I used to fucking love it being, being away and like doing, doing the thing you train for. Mm. Um, but I definitely have my own mind. That's why I got in a bit of shit sometimes because I, I, as you have to being in a position of command, you, you got to make decisions straight away. And then, and then you have to not second guess yourself and go straight through with it to the best of your ability, 110% maximum violence. And then sort of, you know, do a battle damage assessment afterwards think right was that a good idea usually it was um you know and you say like um you think about northern ireland i remember when uh i so see you had ben williams on the other day when they were all like we just got into theater they got oh, can't wait to get into a contact with my lads be fucking careful what you wish for i say because it's not all sunshine and roses and then the first time we um i said it's about a week later actually the first time we got in contact oh my god they were fucking litter all of them so I was like firing away and then going around, kicking up, literally kicking them up the arse, saying, come on, there's, there's actually a video of it somewhere. And I said something like, stop fucking around and get scrapping. You know, as I'm kicking the fucking GPMG guy to get his shit sorted. Um, mm. But yeah, but then after that, I think it's that sort of, fuck, obviously it's, it is terrifying to an extent. Um, but then it's sort of, you get used to it and then weirdly, some of us like it um, until it goes wrong. But then in, yeah, you know, as you'll know, it goes disastrously wrong. It's all like, yeah, let's all have a laugh. We've all been shooting people, but then afterwards, it, it can be fucking awful. Yes, this is the this is the dilemma, isn't it? Or it's the par the paradox, rather, isn't it? It's the paradox. Um, I saw the fate was. I saw Ben's clip where he filmed them doing a, an extraction and jumping on the chopper under fire. And everyone was laughing their asses off, which is how I kind of remember a lot of the core, you know, that real adrenaline and rush. And, but of course, if someone gets winged and they're lying there dying, it, it suddenly it, it's, it's, the, it's the complete opposite of this extremely fun life to, to extreme tragedy. Yeah, I mean, you're, like, you're on that complete knife edge and, like, and that knife edge there is like, fucking absolute bliss but then if you fall off fall fall off like it's it can be yeah devastating and 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 the the worst thing is is when shit does go south you there's no time to sort of grieve or think why bang straight away you're at it again you're doing something else the next day or even a couple of hours afterwards Uh, i think that's where there's sort of you become like a pressure cooker and it all builds up builds up builds up because you don't think i've time to deal with the shit all the time and um, I think that's why a lot of lads have fallen foul of mental health issues because in theatre you don't get the time to process it. And uh, yeah, I think that's why a lot of a lot of people sort of turn south. Especially that's why I had a had a turn because like when um so we'll probably jump all over the place, but whatever we'll roll with it. So like when I was blown up, I was with my lads. When I was in hospital, I was with my lads. When I was in rehab, I was with my lads because there was six of us involved in the blast and so I was always sort of looking out there making sure I was like head and shoulders you know back straight fucking trying to sort of guide them set an example you know let's get through this we can do it sort of thing but then all the while I wasn't dealing with my own shit and that came back to bite me in the eye later on but Paul um, what let, let's just take this moment then for our oppos across all the all the services that are struggling if you're watching this now what what advice are we giving them? Oh, I'm no mental health expert or whatsoever. The first thing I would say is go and see a doctor. So I've, I've been lucky or unlucky enough to have two 
bouts of mental health illnesses, if you like. First one was in 2006 when it wasn't... Um, so it's from an incident in 2003, but I got seen for it in 2006 when like, things were going fucking pretty bad. And so I went to um, uh, down to HMS Drake, which is where the, the old head shrinkers were down there. And I had EMDR therapy. I don't know if you've heard of it. Yeah. It's called uh, yeah, with this, uh, the lights or fingers. Um, that worked an absolute fucking treat for me. Doesn't for everybody. Mm. But then so I sort of, um, and that genuinely fixed me completely. Um, so I then took a vested interest in, in the sort of mental health side of things. So I went on an NLP course, ALP. Did the trim practitioners course, which is pretty pony, really. Um, and I tried to get on the trim managers course, but they were saying only sergeant majors can can go on it at the time. What is it, mate? Cool. Trim managers course. What does it involve? Sorry, uh, trauma risk management, uh, trauma risk management uh, managers course. Um, so that was more for your sergeant majors. And I said, look, I've been through this sort of thing. I can. I'm not saying I can fix it, but I could. I'm on the sort of on the you know at the cold front as well, so I can. I can ping the lads who are sort of maybe going to be struggling and then sort of not tell them, just steer them in the direction they need to go. Cause they're not going to go up to a start manager and go, Oh, so I'm fucking hanging out, you know, it, it, being a corporal may be more approachable, but yeah, that it is what it is. Um, so I took a vested interest in it. And then, cause it also, like, I suppose it's the way my brain works is like, because I studied it and understood how these things happen. Um, I could then deal with my own stuff a bit better. That's, I think, why I lasted so long um, before my next um, mental health breakdown was because I I knew what was going on, so I could sort of half combat against it. Um, but then as these things do, they, they, they become too much sometimes, and then that's when bad shit happens. Do you, did you hit the bottle at all? Yeah, so that was my, so my first um, breakdown. Um, that was... so. Um, it was really bad at the core, really. I don't mean to slate them, but I was hitting the booze like fuck hard. And um, so my wife at the time, she phoned camp and said, there's something not right sort of thing. Um, you know, screaming in my sleep and like just absolutely hardcore boozing. And their reply was, oh, is he being a naughty boy? And like didn't take it seriously. Um, but then I started, it started to affect my work as well. Uh, I, was in a, I was on a training team at the time. And so, yeah, that's when my uh, striper said, look, you are, that's you, you're not on this training team anymore, you go and get yourself sorted out. So I did, um, did as I was told, and I, you know, because it wasn't really a thing then, I did bullshit a little bit to the doctors down at um, CTC, Limpstone. But then when I got down to uh, Drake, um, HMS Drake, where I saw the proper head shrinkers, like um, the, um, the wife um, accompanied me there, to make sure I didn't bullshit you do it's like 90 or I don't know it's like 90 questions or whatever and she's like be and she's literally watching me do it so I couldn't cheat and uh I've got a really good score apparently um so like I think I was like a couple below then literally tying me up in a straight jacket and cart me off but uh, you know I remember saying is that, is that good like trying to make a joke of it and he says no it's not good mate you need to like really sort your fucking life out and I was like okay yeah so I did so that, yeah the booze was a big big fucking I, I could totally, I mean, I've done it. I can totally get because it does numb everything for a little bit, but then it comes back worse, and then it's just a ever, you know, ever going on cycle. It's fucking horrendous. Yeah, booze fucks your sleep up, and it makes it just gives you this underlying depression as you go about your day. 
and you're never going to sort shit out when your mental health ain't right. And so, yeah, so what we're saying to struggling veterans, if you're listening, yeah, lay off the booze. If you can't go and get help for it, speak to someone like myself um, and reach out, isn't it? You know, and if you don't get the answers you need from the first person you you reach out to somebody else because not everyone's going to understand the mindset of a former serviceman because we, yeah. And it's not always the best mates as well. You reach out to them. I've got like real close mates. I've got a couple of cat in my hand. I've got real close mates from the court. And it's not necessarily them you need to go to. Sometimes sometimes it might just be a random, you know, because they impartial, if you like. You know, not not a random you don't know, but yeah, I mean, it can be anything. But, yeah, the first thing is you've got to tell somebody about it because it will eat you up and it will fucking spit you out the other side. Mm. Let's go. Let's talk then, Paul. How did you win your... MC, which is quite funny enough, it was that what you're on about with Ben. Yeah, um, so mine was uh broken down into two parts. Um, because we went on a lot for two days and uh, I get the days mixed up. You you won the M first and then you got the C a bit later, I think so. Well, basically, I told everyone else, I said, get down the G10 office to see the TQ because he's dishing out MCs. I think that's how I got mine. So, but I um, I actually, when I found out because I remember I was at um. I was in recovery at uh, Hasler Company down in Plymouth, um, the rehab centre down there. And my sergeant major, Jim Morris, says, right, Vice, you need to go to see the CO at 4-2 tomorrow in, in like, rig. I goes, I don't even own any rig. I said, what the fuck am I going to do? And he said, and I, was, I remember, I thought, fucking hell, anyway. So I went up there and uh, I was sat in the RSM's office um, with a lad called Patch Adams and, like, patches a bit like me and maybe a bit rough around the edges and i said you've been in the shit and he went yeah a little bit i said yeah so have i and i'd be i thought it was there to be in the shit and so did he and then so they weren't saying anything i went into the um series office and he said and in my oc was still there oh damn i fucked it i'm getting done for something now and then uh so then my oc read out my citation and i was like fucking hell and i stopped i said this isn't a sympathy gong is it because if it is you can ram it i'm not interested and he said, no, this was written far way before you got injured sort of thing. And I was like, oh, fucking hell. And then Patch was there to get an MID as well. So it was actually a good day. But, yeah, that was totally digressing. But what I actually got it for was there were two days. We did two jobs in two days. The first was, um, unfortunately, there was a lad, Dean Mead, was killed on this job where, obviously, you we landed in two um, different sticks, uh, two different targets. We had a big, massive target, um, which is an ID factory. and um, we landed on, walked towards where our entry points were going to be. And we had a certain time, people don't know, it's called H hour. So we had a certain time where we were going to put explosives on the walls, compound walls, and then blow in and go in and seize the IDs, kill the bad guys, that sort of thing. So it was about, we were all ready. And uh, we had a really good intelligence package as well, where um, we had live videos of watching them arm the IDs during the night and then disarm them during the day. So the kids can play and whatnot. Um, so I knew my route in. So I, I led my guys to where I was ready to break in. And about five minutes before it was go time, I heard this massive bang. And then I thought, well, they've gone early. Fuck, is my watch wrong or something like that? Then I heard contact IED over the net. I thought, fuck. So we lost the element of surprise. So I said, right, go now. So um, we were a bit, uh, you know, you've got your assault pairs where you're going to go into rooms and stuff like that. And it was a bit chaotic because we had to get in and get, get moving quickly. So, I just grabbed the first, I think it was actually Ben Williams or maybe Gav Bolger. I just grabbed the first bloke and then I was just tearing through all these rooms, sort of like a bit of a madman. I knew what just happened. 
um, firing on the move, just clearing the rooms pretty much on my own, just like grabbing the next, come follow me, follow me, follow me. So we cleared all the rooms out, got a few of them, and then there was, uh, then we went up onto the rooftops and then started suppressing them as well and uh, got a few more on the roof as well. It's a good, uh, it's a good um, video footage to that. So in the so that was what actually happened. I think the officer spiced that by saying leading by example and taking the fight to the enemy or some shit like that. I can't remember exactly what it said. So you, do you know what? I don't even know how you get all of these citations. I've no idea. My old my old boss Al Burrell, he he wrote it and obviously got it. But I don't know where it is. I remember loosely. And the second bit was for um uh um the bed thing you're on about. So it was when um when we were jumping on the helicopter, we'd been ambushed by um on three sides and so uh i was counting the guys on the helicopter so obviously i was i was in charge and i was like yeah and i could see one of them i was like oh, hell, there he is because you rarely see them you know because they always like hit around so like an idiot i ran towards him um you know shooting on the move and then dropped him and i was like yeah okay sound good to go and i then i sort of had a thought oh i can nick his gun now because obviously they recycle them don't they and then so you know take a pkm off the battlefield will be a big win for us so I went to lift it, and as I went to grab it, you can you can tell the difference in the rotor speed when the Chinook's about to take off. And I was like, they're fucking leaving me. So I turned around, legging it from the corner, oi, oi, where you get? And I jump on the flipping tailgate and like, get even horsed off on the, on the, you know, and the way we went. But the helicopters took some rounds as well. So um, we had to, where do we ditch to? I can't remember another fob on the way because the, the pilot had a round go through his windscreen and you know, he was like the biggest hero of the world. He didn't even hit him, for God's sake, you know what I mean? But... Yeah. So yeah, that in a nutshell, that was it. Um, the two days, them two days made up why I got wrote up for my MC. And yeah, it was a nice little uh, chair on the top to leave the core with, I think, you know, day at the palace and stuff. It was all right. Ben was saying you um, you brought in fire. You took over the five, the Ford. What's it called again? The Ford? Um... Oh, the MFCs. Yeah, yeah. FACs. And I did that a lot, see. Not always, I didn't always get chuck ups for it, shall we say? So, I, basically, there's you get there's jets in the air all the time in Afghan, um, whether they're Dutch jets, American, English, well, not English, there's always a jet around. And so, you've got the common air to ground net, which is basically anyone can get on and just call for help. So, I did that a few times, um, which is you know, dropping 500 pounds down is pretty cool. Um, but the thing, the Ben thing that Ben's on about the MFC in was because we did a job, it was. Couple days before I was killed, it was um, it was we were on the rooftops and no, that's it. We broke in the night and it was it was completely benign. Oh, fuck, it's like it's meant to be like the the Alamo sort of thing. And then uh, so we got up and made, made defenses during the night. And then in the morning we had underslung grenades coming over the compound walls and it took out six guys. Oh, well, cut them here. It took out six guys, but two of the guys taken out were uh, mortar fire controllers. One of them was mate, Paul Hayward. He was off, going off in the stretch. I went, oh, mate, give us that. So I grabbed his radio. I was on the MFC, the Morton net. And I jumped up and was calling in and adjusting indirect fire for the day. It was mint. Because I, like, I, I qualified as a sniper in 2003. So your secondary task as a sniper is to call in and adjust indirect fire. I've done it for a while. So I was like, first round down, I thought, I just said, lads, get down. This could down fucking anywhere. And it was bang on, this graveyard where they're all dicking around. And um, so, yeah, and I just... Leveling for the day, it was quality. <laughs> what um, what what's the sniper rifle that you use now? Because it used to be the is it the L forty two? It used to be in the old when I served. Yeah, that's the old days. Yeah, yeah. yeah. L ninety six, and then it got upgraded to a three three eight. 
you got the AW50 as well. Um, as nowadays, I have no idea. I mean, I'm at the loop a bit. But one thing on that, um, so one of the lads, uh, one of the other waterfowl controllers, God is a good mate of mine, apparently I was the second highest firing MFC on that tour <laughs> from that day. Absolutely rinsed it. So for people listening, MFC is mortar fire controller. If you're, Oh, yeah, sorry. If, if, yeah, if you're one military what, analogies. So what Paul's saying is, it, although it wasn't specifically his role, he's obviously trained to do it as a corporal. And he's on the radio, bringing in, bringing down either fire from the aircraft or from what from a mortar troop or yeah, eighty-one millimeter mortar line. They were, I think, it's three, three barrels. I think per how, how think far away can they be? Is that quite some distance? Was oh, you're telling me? I think it's five, six, seven, five. So I'm going to get rinsed now by the lads. I think that's the range of an eighty-one mortar, five, six, seven, five. Yeah. I've done it. I'm obviously out of the game for Is a long time now. Kilometers, yeah, five. Yeah, five thousand six hundred seventy-five meters or five nine seventy-five. Yeah, okay. I don't know. No, no, no. It does. I mate, you're not. I don't remember. I hardly. I mean, yeah, I hardly remember any of the technical stuff. I'm just wondering. You know, are we talking like, you know, thirty miles or something like the gunners? Or no. is it? Is it really? Yeah, one hundred five guns, seventeen k. I think seventeen k. Um, yeah. Yeah. No. I may be completely making that up. I say because like, I've been outside for five years now. Something so. So next to Ben, I don't think many people will have heard firsthand what it's like to walk into an IED. Are we all right to talk about that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so can you, can, well, over to you, mate. Well, the, the way I, I explain it, it's like we've all been like kids or playing on AstroTurf and stuff. Like you, and do you know when like you do a slide tackle or fall over or whatever, on AstroTurf and you get like that sand in 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 your wound sort of thing the burn then you get in the shower afterwards and it fucking hurts doesn't it yeah, it's worse than that <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> worse than a nosebleed then yeah no honestly to be it didn't actually hurt at the time uh the, like the first thing i remember was like the intense heat that was a big thing it was well, i was on fire so of course i was hot but like it was the intense heat's the biggest thing that hits you and then you you just go into sort of survival mode then I mean, it sounds cliche and but your training does kick, kick in so when i was like checking myself over making sure you know i was going down my leg searching my left hand making sure that my leg was attached and it was and then the other leg yeah that was all right because i've got two legs to cable searching my left hand three out of four so far i'm doing all right and then i couldn't feel my arm because i was led on it i didn't know at the time so i was still in a bit of a mess and then i sort of just saw the blood and i thought shit i've lost my arm so i tried to get my tourniquet so it's mad now thinking about that just a matter of fact okay you've lost your arm get your tourniquet out. so it's just the way you sort of think i suppose at the time and then when i was faffing around um trying to get the tourniquet in the shoulder pockets when my hand went inside my neck and i was like oh, it's, 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 all the blood's pissing everywhere and i realized i had bigger problems and that's when i wrapped probably Ah, oh, fuck it, they've probably got me now. And that, that's when the lads all um, came right together and got me out of there. It's, mate, it's incomprehensible. It's just incomprehensible. I'll tell you why. I was in Norway once. I was doing some studies over there and we, we set up for a Winter Olympics for the day. So we were skiing and doing triathlon, all all this kind of, doesn't, doesn't really matter. But anyway, I'm all set to go in this um, Winter Olympics. I'm doing the 15k ski. I'm doing the tri- the triathlon. I'm doing the ski jump. We even had a ski jump, right? 
that morning I slipped sideways on a sheet of black ice in a, that was that had formed in the doorway of our accommodation. And yeah, it's that ear there. I went sideways into the door jam and it split my ear, right? Now, it compared to what you went through, we're talking, this is about, I don't know, six or seven millimeter. It just split the top of my ear, right? Some guy grabbed me and the way he was talking to me told me it's more serious than than I'm realizing, right? But it's still yeah. it wasn't that serious. When I looked in the mirror and I saw that my actual physical body had cut, you know, it had come apart. Yeah. I just felt this wave of it wasn't nausea. I didn't feel sick or nothing, but I just felt fucking queasy as fuck, right? Yeah. And in that instant, as the shock set in. Sounds funny. I slipped in a doorway, but I smacked my head so hard it split my ear. And as the sort of shock came in, in that split second, I thought, I don't want to do this Winter Olympics today. <laughs> you know, it was like, oh, oh, fuck that. You know, just, just it's the way the mind reacts. You know, it just immediately wants to think about the now, fuck everything else. Da, da, da. Fight or flight, isn't it? That's what it is. Yeah. I was down to. That was a tight, well, I say tight, they, they actually super glued my ear back together, which is what they invented for Vietnam, wasn't it, super glue? Yeah. Sew the troops back together in the field. Um, what you went through, mate, in, incomprehensible is a word that comes to my mind. Yeah, I mean, the, my main effort for that, for that whole process was to stay awake because like and I was I remember I was moving I thought I was having like a little rave or something but I just thought you've got to stay awake because you go to sleep you're never waking up mm. so I was just trying to stay awake that's my main focus stay awake stay awake stay awake and then like on the helicopter I knew as soon as I made it onto the helicopter I would in theory be okay um but the thing when so when the bomb went off I was obviously the commander so my um radio was now just a flipping bag of springs it was smashed to pieces the blast wave had knocked all the um the crypto fill out of out of the other radio so what crypto fill is people don't know is your radios are encrypted with this stuff should we say i'm not a signalist i don't know so then you can talk to each other so um it's encrypted so people can't listen in mm. so when that gets taken off the radios are pretty much useless so the blast wave had actually dropped the crypto fill out of the radios the other radio in the section so we had to rely on the personal radios to get help from the um from the, the base we just left. Um, so we were relaying through to them. So we couldn't call for help um, for the helicopter to come in. Uh, so it took a bit longer than, than sort of we would want. But yeah, it was uh, and one so of the best day at the office. You must have envisaged getting blown up. You know, what was it? You know, what what's it like if I get blown up? Was it anything like what you envisaged? Um, I don't know, because I've seen I've seen lads in front of me being blown up before so um i had a rough idea of what it would be like but in all honesty i think because your body just completely goes into survival and shuts down just keeps basically this little bit working you know you don't feel the pain at the time um you know the initial ah, little scream, and then, then your body goes right we need to protect ourselves now. and your body's an amazing thing so you just shut down the main thing i think i thought it would hurt a lot more than what it actually did mm. um the initial pain was like, oh, my fucking God. But then it just literally went. Because I think well, it depends what sort of state you're in. I was in a pretty bad way. So I think my body went to complete shutdown survival mode. But I don't I don't recommend it, to be honest with you. 
uh, it definitely stings. Yeah, I won't be doing. I won't be doing that this afternoon. Don't worry. <laughs> like I, I get like my my girlfriend Megan. She's got me on her phone as Big Cheese because I look like a piece of cheese because I've got holes all over me. Like I'm covered in them. <laughs> and how? What was the setup then when you walked into it, Ben? Ben talked me through it, but for people that didn't see Ben's um, podcast, which I recommend you you watch, that was fascinating. He said you were like walking along a wall, and he reckoned the device was in the wall. Yeah, so we were. Um, it was like a, I don't know, probably a five meter wide um, sort of uh, road into the main village centre, and uh, either side there was a compound on the, on the left, a big long compound going to work for the centre about. 200 meters to our front was the village center where we're heading and along the right hand side was um a sort of two meter no not even two meters probably a meter and a half high wall um that was running alongside with the, with the field the other side of it and uh we were walking along and uh i was number four on the patrol and uh, so we had the point man dog handler jordan in front of me and i was number four so they all passed and you got it was Looking back now, I can still see it in my mind's eye pretty clearly. Um, it was an oil drum that was buried um, into the bottom of the wall and just it was uh, poking out. Not It was quite clear, fair, it's flushed with the wall, but it's just an oil drum. It's clear as day, you could see it, with some bracken placed in front of it, some like real crap effort uh, camouflage in it. And as soon as I saw it, I was like, yeah, I know what that is. And like, I've told this story before, but like, um, you know, people say when they've been in a uh, car crash and stuff, they say, like, um, time slows down. Well, we, we all know that's impossible. But um, but what I think happens is you have so many thoughts firing through your head at one time that it gives you the perception of time slowing down because you've never thought that quick before in your life. So, like, from seeing it to turning and running, quarter of a second, maybe, half a second. Um, but in that time, I, I so I saw the device. I looked into the field behind it saw two guys hunkered down and I just knew I thought, right, that's a command wire ID. Those are the trigger men. Turn, run, shout to loot behind me, run. And, you know, in that split second, I pieced all that together and it was all in slow motion. And then bang off it went. And then I was shot like an arrow into the wall, the other side, into the compound next to me. And then that's when it all started going downhill from there. And when you got on the, well, First off, what's it like when you get on a chopper in Afghanistan? Are you, are you I guess there's a kind of sense of relief, right? We're on our way back to the FOB, the, the what's that, the Ford Observation Ford Base? Operate, Ford, Ford Operating, operating Base. base. Yeah. Um, there's that kind of, well, we finished work for the day, which must be a nice yeah. feeling. But are you thinking, let's not get hit now, let's not get an RPG, let's not get some rounds coming through the chopper? I mean, to be fair, like once you're on the helicopter, you literally just, nah, that's me, I'm done. See you later. But then, because obviously they've got their mini guns either side and they've got a tail gun as well. So they should be able to look after you. Um, so, yeah, when you, it's a nice feeling when you get on a helicopter, especially if you've had a tough day. It's mm-hmm. like, oh, thank God. Yeah, let's just get back and sort of mm-hmm. decompress a little bit. But this time you're getting on and obviously you're a bit broken up. Are, are you thinking, oh, I just get a, put a plaster on it and I'll be back out with the lads tomorrow or did, or were you? No, I mean, I mean, I don't, I, the last thing I remember was, um, obviously I could, I I was led on on, in the field, uh, on the stretcher and I was like literally about to sort of cop it again. And, um, 
I remember the um, the exhaust on my neck behind me, so it flew over my head and landed behind me. I could feel feel the back of my neck, and I was like, "Yes, thank God!" Like if I get on this helicopter, I've cracked it. And as I was getting put on, I remember a um, a, a guy in a flight helmet um, or helmet, and I I thought he stuck a hose pipe down my neck. But it was one of those little airways, you know, and and, and that was the last thing I remember. And then that was it. I was out. Um, so. That was my aim to get on the helicopter, stay awake and get on the helicopter and get taken care of by professionals, not just the lads cuffing it, seeing if they could keep me alive. <laughs> but um, yeah, and then obviously there's, um, there was me and Luke uh, were in uh, a pretty bad way. Luke had looked like he'd been peeled, apparently. His face was like missing. I was obviously fucking in bits. And the other lads on the helicopter were all smashed up, broken legs, like chest injuries, arms all smashed up. Um, Ben and Gab were and Spence were completely awake. Uh, so they were watching the carnage unfold in front of them, sort of thing. That's when I had the old D fibs and stuff on me and you know, trying to get me back after I stacked it again. Um, but the lads are jack as well, you know. So this all sounds like doom and gloom, but like, so <laughs> we're obviously on the helicopter. I think they carry about seven litres of blood or something like that. And in all, I had, I had, how many? I think I had. 28 units i think that's 14 liters so because i had all the blood and other lads needed it they crated me so i had to buy my crate a bit because i was being jack because i scrammed all the blood <laughs> what wankers jack uh, for our friends is uh selfish yeah jack bastard. Being selfish <laughs> yeah yeah well at least when you got back to the fo well i guess you didn't go back to the fob but by this no, time back to bastion and somebody, somebody grab your pet. <laughs> Probably. I'll tell you what, though, Ben Wilmot, the dick, he, um, so my day sack was smashed to pieces. But I had, obviously, when I went um, in my Bergen, I had loads of cigarettes in there, 400 cigarettes for like, I don't know how long I was going to be out there. But Ben Wilmot snapped all of them, wanker. <laughs> wasn't Ben, wasn't that the chap on the TV program? Uh, Is he a black lad? No, 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 no. He's a well, was a Welsh lad. Ah, uh, okay, yeah. yeah, okay. I've had a Ben Wilmot in touch with me recently. So, uh, anyway, so when you next regained consciousness, were you back in the UK or were you still over there? Back in the UK, yeah. Is that because yeah. they let they put you into a coma, or was that just you were just out? Yeah, I think so. I was in a medical induced coma. I'm not too sure to be completely honest with you. Um, yeah, I, I came to a little bit um, when I came out of the ambulance uh, at Birmingham Hospital, at Queen Elizabeth Hospital. I came to, I remember opening my eyes and I remember seeing a grey English sky, a grey sky, and I remember it burning my eyeballs because it was just too bright. And then I went back again and then a couple of days later I came to again. Uh, but the interesting thing was from point of wounding, to being on the operating table in Birmingham, uh, it was 20 hours, which is phenomenal. You can't get back an R&R that quick. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a mass. Like, when you sort of strip it all back, look at the amount of people involved in that process of getting me and the guys home. It is staggering, staggering. I mean, you know, as bootnecks and Marines, we give the, you know, other cat badges a lot of shit, and rightly so sometimes. Um, but, you know, what a team effort. It's mm-hmm. phenomenal. From air traffic controllers 
you know, to helicopter scrum pilots, to the nurses on the C-17, the pilots for C-17. You get blue lighted by the local police from Birmingham Airport, you know, to um, to, Birmingham, to the hospital. You know, it, all those cogs in place, just a massive machine. It was phenomenal. I guess it must have been a shock waking up to find all those Brummies around you. Yeah, well, I, I, can't, I don't, so I don't really remember uh, being in hospital that much until I went up onto, especially the ICU, I don't remember that very well but i remember being uh, on the ward up with the lads uh but yeah god because they there's a semi hospital isn't it right so civilians in this hospital and uh god there was this one woman on the ward who was a fruitcake and she should do my head in a lot so i just fired into her and just gave her neat shit and just told her that i'd be quite mean to her to be honest but it was all entertaining for the lads and stuff but i got shit as i usually do as well because like i was because I was all smashed up on one side, well, both sides, my brain damage, my right side didn't work. And obviously my left leg was smashed to pieces. So my only thing that worked properly was my left arm, but it was all really heavily bandaged with holes in it. So like they couldn't give me a one-handed wheelchair because there's another lad on the ward who needed it more, triple amputee spider. Um, so they had the old shower chairs with like, the wheels on it. So my right leg was the only thing that was sort of working. Uh, sorry, left leg um, at the time. So I would, be going backwards and there's a big arc the um the wards so i'll be ragging it around there to all the lads rooms and stuff and the nurse going paul get back in your bed and going, Fuck you. And just, all, <laughs> just whizzing around like an idiot so how how was it were you did you have a partner at this point you you, you did didn't you yeah yeah and how was it for her hearing the news Must, um you know i still like this i've said this to a few people before but that I mean, I say we get like drapes and medals and like you're with the, let's say, with the lads all the time in recovery. But I still don't know if I would be able to handle that. Um, so when it happened, um, one of our neighbours, so she'd been out doing something and um, she came back home with children and uh, the neighbour said, the Marines have been here for you. She's like, what? And then as she said it, they were coming up the drive, up, up the road. She was asking them, so she took the kids and then, they said, look, Paul's been involved in an incident. Um, uh, he's on his way back now um, in, in the aircraft. Uh, we don't know if he's going to be alive when he gets here. And she's like, what? So then she went bang straight to Birmingham. <clears throat> and I, um, I, you know, through all like the sort of shit that uh, we've been through for a few years, like, I mean, that must have been bloody awful. I could not imagine what that's like. Oh, it's... It, well, it, I mean, it literally is the worst news you can hear in the world, isn't it? If if yeah, if it sounds like you're going to lose the one you love, that it, it's it doesn't get any worse than that, does it? Nah, nah. Yeah. Um, I, I, I don't know what I mean. You're on your own as well. It must, be, it must have been awful. It'd be different. I mean, they, didn't, they didn't get any help either. I don't think, which is I think is quite sad. To be fair, like the visiting officer. So I had um, what was his name? Norman Hall, an old ML. He's a real good guy so he was my vision of them he, he, they do their best to look after them as in like their needs but like again i don't want to bang on that mental health but it must be bloody that's that's a traumatic experience so mm. i don't know if they receive although they may do nowadays but i don't know if they receive any sort of help for it to sort of digest what they've just been told so yeah it must have been pretty pretty tough yeah it's like have you seen um it's an excellent book i've got it here on the shelf somewhere we were soldiers once and we were soldiers once and young. 
I've heard it's a film, isn't it? As well, yeah, um, by Mel Gibson. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, Lieutenant Colonel yeah. Hal Moore wrote it. Um, that's it. American Marine and and when um, when his boys were out there in Vietnam and they were taking heavy casualties, the the, the equivalent of the American MOD, they were sending the news of like the death of a loved one around in a taxi, and this this poor taxi driver he's just distraught because he's having to deliver all the He's just a taxi yeah. driver and he's having to tell all these wives and, 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 you know, families that your, your husband's just been killed in Vietnam. Right. So then the, the wives took charge of it themselves and said, listen, every yeah. time you get one of these telegrams, you bring it here and we will deliver it to the, to the partner, you know, but yeah. Um, it'd be different in this house. Cause if, if my uh, partner and my boy found out I was gone, they'd be like, yes, get him. <laughs> Got we'd be like, Mum, can we go down to daddy shop now? <laughs> no, yeah, all, all, all joking apart, it it's it's just like fucking peace, folks. Let's let's have some peace because yeah, it's um it's just not 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 something anyone should go through. Um no. awful, awful. Now at what point then, Paul, did you leave the core? Because it sounds like you stayed on. For, for a while after your injury? Yeah, so the, one, one thing the Corps is really good at is looking after their lads. Right, so, <clears throat> so they don't discharge you until you're medically as fit as you can be. Um, physically, medically. I mean, there's some lads go with um, PTSD, they get discharged with issues. <clears throat> but like, uh, so physically, um, they don't discharge until you've finished all your surgeries. So I was having limb salvage surgery for, in what, three years? three years on my leg four years whatever it was three years I was so I'm trying to save my leg um so that's why I stayed on and then obviously I lost lost a leg and then I had to rehab after that so I actually left the core in 2016 August and funny because I so when I because I had loads and loads of leave to take and um so my TX date was going to be TX means the day you're leaving was going to be you know early 17 I think with all the all the leave I had <clears throat> So I uh, I actually left the court on August the 25th, 2016, which was five days to the day after I got blown up because I had a lot of work on that date. So it's quite cool. Just remember it. Did you say f- five years to the day? Yeah. Yeah. And can you tell us, I mean, I saw it in, in your documentaries, obviously, but for the people that haven't watched them, what was the decision that led to you having your leg amputated in, in the end? Um, so I was, as I was saying, I, ha- I had lots of limb salvage surgery <clears throat> and none of it was really working, to be honest. And then so my surgeon said, we're going to try this brand new. You can't bend it. Amazing sur- surgical procedure. And it's going to fix everything. I was like, all right, let's give it a whirl. Um, it was a cast. It was a trial. I mean, it was going to give up the ghost anyway. So it was a massive trial and error thing. I said, we'll give it a shot. And it was a catastrophic fail already. So it didn't take the decision out of my hands. I still could have kept it, but it was even worse than it already was. So I said, look, enough's enough now. And I tried my best. I tried for three years to keep it. Um, but then it just became a bit frustrating. Where, like, you'd see lads coming through the doors at Headley Court, um, you know, missing limbs. And then six weeks there, bang, they're gone. You know, they're up and away. So I was like, right, get it off. So, um yeah, that's what sort of made my decision. Basically, by by having your leg cut off, you're giving yourself freedom, aren't you? And and it's yeah. I mean, in hindsight, I I, I should have because I remember like 
early, early days when you have your full like, head to body when they tell you what's wrong with you and they give you the prognosis of what, what so they've been starting on my brain damage and say, well, you may be able to get some cognitive functions back, your hand may come back and all that sort of thing. And then um, they said, my leg, they said, well, you've got severe nerve damage, you've broken the ligaments, your ankle smashed to pieces, yada, yada, yada. They said, worst case scenario is you'll lose that leg. And I was like, fucking no chance. They'll be stupid. It'll be fine, sort of thing. Then obviously, mm. yeah, it happened. In- and your um, prosthetic, is that like one of these million dollar jobby carbon fiber, all singing, all dancing things? Or is that not an issue? No, it's, it's fairly basic. I mean, I, it's carbon fiber in a socket, but I just, but like, yeah, it's just a little bit of gucci bit this little ball here torsion ball it's half a blade sort of foot thingy uh it's my everyday leg i've got like a blade i've got five legs i don't know where they all are to be honest but uh um fuck me you only need three more and you'll be a spider i know yeah i've actually got another foot that got given uh skiing foot but uh yeah it's just right this i I don't even notice anymore to be honest with you i don't think i walk quite well well i walk really well actually um yes doesn't bother me at all anymore. So, I'm as mobile now as I was before. So skiing, it's um, yeah, mate, you got to get on a snowboard. Come on, oh, don't. Uh, so because you, there's no flexion in your foot, so a friend of mine, a couple of friends of mine, uh, board with prosthetics. They've got to put a wedge under their heel to keep their like, I don't know, I've never. I boarded once when I was I two legs and it was shit, and then it broke my wrist every for ten minutes. But um. Yeah, I mean, I hadn't been skiing on a prosthetic until January, just gone. So I went out with the lads, um, 12 or 14 of us went over to Chamonix. Um, just all lads, it was carnage. But, so I'd never done it before. And I, so when you get hot, um, my your stump shrinks a little bit. So my stock is not fitting that great anyway. So I'd be like, it's quite hard work at it skiing. So I, I hadn't skied for years. I thought, I'd take it nice and steady. And I was like, I've got this. And I was going away nice and steady. And then I was when my stump gets hotter, so my stump would twist as I went as I go to turn, but it just twist inside my socket. So I ski and stay straight. So I'd be going like that, and I'd have some flipping big old crashes. So because obviously you compensate for a lack of skill with a bit of bollocks. So I'd just be going egging it down all the hills, and um, so I managed to um, just wrap loads of like uh, paper and toilet roll, roll and stuff around my leg and put a sock on top to plump it out. So it would stay on all the time um, because lads have like this skin felt like given actually like, cause I just, my normal leg it is now I put in a ski boot and just went for it. Just, and that was, it was all right to be fair in the end, but the, you get like these um, feet that actually attach straight into the ski. Mm-hmm. So you just don't wear a ski boot, which is be a lot cause they're flipping heavy. I'm on, on the lift. I was like, I was going up the lift and I had to, to hold on to my leg because it was going to fall off because it was like hanging down and the ski and the boot attached to it. I'll tell you what, you see a lot of shit lying down there that people have dropped on a ski lift, right? <laughs> Imagine, oh, there's someone's leg. <laughs> yeah, it would be like sticking up with a ski on the end of it, yeah. Um, it's interesting, isn't it, that, and I'm not making any judgment call here, but you see so many young men now with artificial legs because they've lost it in the, lost a limb in the Middle East, right? Or two limbs. That yeah. it's, it's, it's almost like it's really reduced the stigma around disability. Cause I mean, I they, they, they look so. like, they just look like cool dudes in the supermarket. Do you know what I mean? And I, I, they, they, you know, people know that they're soldiers. So it, it's. It, yeah. I, th- I think you can tell apart the sort of, uh, 
military amputees to the uh, majority, not all of them, but majority of the CV amputees um, because they they just they're normal. They whereas I've seen guys with a below knee uh, amputation, which is fuck all really, really struggling like civvies. I go to my prosthetic centre in Bristol, and you see them all sat there with their legs in wheelchairs. I'm like, what are you doing in a wheelchair with a leg? Because I, I think it's that mindset again where you know you just get up and get stuff done. When when I was um, in my rehab for my uh, prosthetic, I had certain goals. I was like, I want to do this, this, and this, and they're like, ain't happening. I said, yes, it will. So I, I had a, that mindset to go out and do things. And I've been heavy caught them, not going to do now, but they, just after I left, they were using me as a sort of a test case. So look, if you listen to what we tell you, this is what can be achieved in a time frame. So I was running in uh, eight weeks, 10 weeks, I think it was. I was, you know, you have to pass tests and stuff to get your blade and stuff like that. I was, I was smashed it like quickly. My rehab was quite short on my prosthetic. Mm. But um, it's, it's, it's a shame to see like so many people you know i'm not saying it's all the poor me poor me sort of thing but some people do feel a bit sorry for themselves um whereas you, your average military veteran would be like that just get on with it get done yeah. Yeah. but i mean kids kids are um the kids are cool with it because like whereas you know i've had it before and they're not saying everyone does it but people just like stare at you and like oh and like look at you but like, oh, funny leg obviously but kids are cool they just go what's that and you're like well it's a prosthetic leg how did you do that? I lost it in the war. And they just ask questions. And I'd much rather somebody ask me about it than just like, look at your funny, you know? Uh, I get it. I do get it a lot still. People, um, you know, looking funny. Yeah, I was, um, do you know Kale? No. Kale. Oh, Kale Royce? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. But very, very nice, man. He's road. He's always rowing across oceans. Um, yeah. Weirdo. He, yeah. He's got both, you know, he lost both his legs. Yeah. Uh, I remember I was I was at a party with him once, and my little boy was running around, and my boy and my boy's like looking at his prosthetics, and it's just it's you know it's just not an issue for them, is it? Do you know what I mean? They can't. He's kind of probably wondering what 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 what's that, but it's um yeah. It's interesting because like um on the so Herrick nine in two thousand and eight, um was it Herrick? No, maybe before that. Anyway, my mate lost his leg, uh, Ashwinard. He's actually a copper now. Um, he lost his leg, and my and I'm good, good friends of him. Mm. Uh, oh, no, he was on the same toy, it was. So that was it. Um, so Ashwinard lost his leg, and my kids were like seeing him going, What's that? Because they were younger then, sort of thing. What's that? What's that? What's that? So I think that sort of inoculated them a little bit for when I had mine off. They, they'd seen it before, sort of thing. Um, yeah, he's a good lad, Ash. He's, he's the oh, first yeah. um, amputee to uh, be in a Devon Corn Police. Oh, really? Yeah. And um, just to just to close, but I mean, it's a big old thing going for an operation anyway, isn't it? It's, I mean, I've had my back, I've had back surgery and stuff, and it's kind of it's an interesting old thing. Somebody putting you unconscious when they're going to get a knife and start taking bits out of your body, and you do yeah. think you do think. I hope I'll wake up from this. <laughs> but for yeah. you, that's even, that's just amplified to think it's a, it, I mean, it's a milestone in your life, isn't it? It's a changing point. It's goodbye yeah. leg. Didn't you write something like, fuck off, you loser or something like that? <laughs> yeah. I think it was something like, uh, 
thanks for the misery and admin you've caused me over the last three years late as you bastard <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah that, yeah that went off but i mean like, I've, I've seen the surgery right i was asleep but like, i watched the video of it and uh that bone saw oh god when it starts like chewing through your tib and fib yeah it's pretty nasty yeah, I mean, well, I mean, they put they put you out for a reason, is so you don't have to watch that. <laughs> yeah, let's talk about Invictus. Then, when did that come around? When you were still in, or is this after you'd left? Yeah, I was still in. Um, so, so I um I got involved in like adaptive sport um when I was at my recovery centre in Plymouth, um, and that was at the uh, Warrior Games in Colorado in two thousand thirteen. And uh, I'd never done any adaptive sport in my life, so I'd give everything a go, pretty much. And um, it was there, that was the first time I uh, met, um, face-to-face, rather, first time I met uh, Prince Harry. And um, we were at this, um, make a fancy house, come over where it was, and we were just chatting away, and he said, look, we need to do this bigger and better back in the UK. I said, yeah, it'd be great, sort of thing. And we were chatting to all the lads and stuff, and... And I, typical pessimist of the British military, I thought it'd be a couple of nine by nine tents, um, at an RAF camp or something like that. And um, yeah, we took over the Olympic Park, and I was fortunate enough to be sort of one of the poster children for the for the first Invictus Games, me and a few other lads. So I was doing a lot of the press and the media and stuff for it. And um, yeah, and it was a great success. I mean, I didn't do all of the games, but like, I think that's a fact. I spoke to guys who've done all of them now. And uh, yeah, um, London was still, it was awesome. It was awesome. What's, um, what's Harry like? He's saying just a normal bloke, just a normal bloke. That's all you can say about him. Like any other um, serviceman, he's just the same. He's exactly the same. There's no races. Did you bum a Siggy off him? No, I bummed one off Ray Winston. That was a good, that was a good bit. But yeah, um, yeah, no, he's, um, I don't think he smokes anymore, was he? Um, I, yeah, know, um, I, just, I got the impression he liked a fucking sneaky tab. Yeah. I know, just a normal bloke. Likes the booze, likes the lads. That's it. Yeah, yeah he's just um, a normal bloke. Yeah, been through an awful lot as well, hasn't he? Fucking hell. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I'd say I'm, I'm not so much the last year or so, but yeah, I was quite close to him, to be fair. Like, you know, he used to chat regularly and stuff like that. I mean, I think the last time I actually saw him was at the wedding, but that was... What, a year ago now, was it? Something like that. Um, yeah, obviously he's moved on with his missus now. So You went I mean, to like, wedding, did you? Yeah. Yeah, so that was a good day. Um, but yeah, I was just like, he's going off doing his thing. Now let him crack on. Fuck me. He's done, you know, he's served 10 years in the military. He's he's like retired. You know, he's doing his own thing. I mean, let's be honest, right? If you had, he had a missus like his, and she goes, I've had enough of this shit. Let's go live in my mansion in Malibu you're like no I'm alright I'm just going to stick out in Kensington oh yeah. you fuck you're going to go okay I'll go with you see you later uh, yeah and he's just and that's, and apart from his world titles and all that sort of stuff like I mean let him do what he wants I mean I'm a bit like not disappointed that's the wrong word but a bit gutted in a way that he has to give up his um his role as captain general of the marines but it's what it is isn't it you know so unfortunately he couldn't keep hold of that as an honorary title because I think there's still a, and I think he still will do an awful lot of good for the veteran community. So he genuinely cares, like genuinely does care. And he gets like, it, obviously lads, because he's so approachable, like lads have dripped to him. They go, they go, well, I'm not getting this done because this, 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 this. And he'd be like, what? And he, he, he 
be genuinely pissed off of it and he and he would go above and beyond to to sort things out for people because he's just a, a decent guy and he's got some clout so mm. yeah he's a, he's a good dude Paul have you met Bear Grylls then? yeah once yeah um, he um, I got I say this is all part of the um, Invictus thing as well was because uh, Jaguar were the, the main sponsors and I think they well they are until 2020 but I'm not talking about Jaguar dicks but um They've obviously seen me off with race cars and stuff. But anyway, um, yeah, so they were building the, the millionth Land Rover Defender was coming off the production line. So they had not for one second saying I am, but they had celebrities um, fitting parts to it. So um, me, um, JJ, Chalmers, Dave Benson were the, the military contingent. We fitted a bit to it. And um, he rocks up in his fucking helicopter, doesn't he, with his Royal Marines. Um, hoodie on and I because he was like an honorary colonel and all that I thought he was a dick and I was like I'm going to fucking have this bloke here but um, he's actually a really nice guy so I was a bit disappointed but also happy so yeah he's a nice he's a nice bloke yeah it's um, yeah <laughs> yeah it's um, it's he, TV's hard isn't it the whole media world as you well know it's not what people think it is and it's no and it's, it's all so false and there's there's so many shenanigans and tricks being played to for so the um, public. Happens. Mate, honestly, I you see people for their true colours as well, massively. Like, uh, so a lad who actually saved my life, Richie Pencott, he works in TV and film a lot now. And like, so he did the ropes for Bear Grylls for a long time, and Dave Pearson and the boot neck work with him. Um, but yeah, I mean, I mean, there, there are some people, especially the the current crop of people involved in TV. Not all of them are my favourite people. Because, like, you know, as well, like, I think bootlegs have got an inherent way of helping each other out. We have done forever. Like, I remember I had an idea that I needed help getting off the ground. And I went to a certain individual, part of the SS who does Winds Crew. And based, I've known the guy for ages. He basically just fucked me off. And I was like, you are such a dick. But, you know, like, and then there's, there's other sort of parts of the story where, you know, I've been really helped out in that sort of side because I said I've been burnt once before through um, sort of the commercial TV sort of side thing. You know, Jason Fox has been really handy, really helpful as well about um, helping me get my book done. So, you know, he's put me in touch with his writer, um, you know, lashed me up there and like and say some people are just out to do good things for people. But mm. in that that in that sort of business, it's something I don't really want to be involved in. I got thrust into it a little bit. Um you know, back along, but yeah, it's not something I'd want to revisit. So following the Jimmy Savile scandal, scandal isn't even the right word. Just there isn't a word to describe that mm. fucking debacle, especially in core history. Should, should the Romans keep giving the green berry, which for, for people who wonder what, what, where I'm going with this, it's, it's an honor to wear it. It's, it's the hardest um, I don't, I can't think of the right word, but the the hardest thing to to earn in basic military training in the world, and for all the people to go, yo, Spetsnaz, and it's like, no, 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 basic infantry training, not talking about elite special forces, um, and it it stands for certain thing. It stands for for commando. Uh, the commando ethos among, amongst many things. It stands for people that have that have died um, in battle. It, it stands for a lot of things. Should should 
the MOD keep giving it to celebrities? You know, to uh, personally, I, I like you say that it represents so many things, so many people. Those, those have got one. It's a very, very exclusive club, and um, in short, no, I don't think they should. Um, however, on the flip side, the core, even though it's a military, is a business as well, isn't it? There's a brand att- attached to the core, and if you can get brand ambassadors, I'd like to call them, to do good and get people through the gates, then I can see there being a point to it. Like, But I can see like that Bear Grylls, for example, nice enough guy. What does he actually do? What does he do to, to because he doesn't go on ops, that's for sure. So he must offer something in return for his green lid. Now, does he do enough? No, I don't think he does. Um, so that's why, I mean, I can see there'd be a point to it, like to attach celebrities to the core. Because let's face it, we're the sexiest sort of like wannabe sort of people want to be us. But um, wow, it's you know, this, it's this recruiting dialect. You know, they're having a trouble recruiting now, aren't they? Um, probably for several reasons. And I guess they put a face like Bear Grylls with a green lid on. All those young lads that love watching his adventure programs are now thinking, ah, Royal Marines. That's maybe a you know. Um, I don't know if I'd want that. Well, I wouldn't. I, I, I wouldn't want that. <laughs> I wouldn't want that um, accolade because I wouldn't want to be sending young men off to fucking war. Not when I look at that scumbag Tony Blair and George Bush and um, ah, that's probably another another yeah. avenue. Yeah, they were. They got a lot to. Have. I mean, like you can see it from both. Like you see from the PR and marketing sort of point of view, where then yeah, uh, um, a high-profile celebrity like that would be good for to drive recruitment numbers. But then you've got to think about the guys that are, you know, who served veterans or are serving. Like, hold on, I busted my ass to get that mm-hmm. Green Beret. And you're giving it to some geezer because he's on TV. I think the current climate as well now in this pandemic highlights the fact that, you know, celebrity means toss in this, in this day and age. You know, there's people like the Amazon drivers and, you know, Obviously, the NHS go that saying, but there's a lot of people who do an awful lot of good, you know. And just because you're celebrity doesn't mean absolutely nothing. And I hope we can't ever say this. People sort of uh, keep that trend going. Mm. So before we finish off, Paul, you did really well at the these games, didn't you? you- yeah, um, yeah, I think so. In 2014, I had two legs, and I um, I got a gold in cycling. And uh, in 16, I had um, uh, one leg. So I was a brand new amputee then. And I won seven medals at that game. I was the most successful male athlete, which was, which was pretty good. Um, so I had, I, had always, I always have a plan. So my plan was to do it in 16 as a new amputee. And then in 17 in Toronto, I was going to, um, I'd be by then a fully fledged amputee, if you like. So I'd be able to see how far I could push my new body, as I call it. Um, but then, so I did the selection for Toronto and I smashed everybody, everybody, the cycling, swimming. I was just, I was on, I was on fire. So I actually trained, really, I didn't really train for anything before, but I trained really hard for it. And then when I got the knockback, I was like, what the fuck am I going to do now? Because it was all part of my plan to see how far I pushed myself. What and then, the, sorry, what was the knockback actually for? Did, did they tell you? No, I said I wasn't successful. And that was it. And I was like, fuck, what am I going to do now? 
Two essence, that's what it was. I think that's what it was. Basically, the, 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 these chiselled, haggard, good looks are not, not fit for Invictus anymore. But, you know, as one door closes, another one opens. So I went to a, um, an open day for Jaguar um, to, well, there was a loose talk about race car driving. Like 90 blokes turned up to drive these cars around and they ended up choosing two of us to be racing drivers for the next couple of years. So that you know, it's not all bad. So wow. that's what I've been doing the last few years. So listen, yeah, I want you to tell me about that, but I just got to tell you my little bit about the you mentioned Land Rover, right? Yeah. When I, I, I was on, oh, we've lost you for a sec. Sorry. Fuck, well done. If yeah. anybody rings you, by the way, don't answer it because last time that happened, it, it we lost the recording. <laughs> oh, I'm um, do not disturb actually. Bear with. There you go. Yeah, that's yeah, good. Yeah. Yeah. When I was on a ship for a year, HMS Invincible, um, what am I saying? Yeah. I don't know how it came about. I don't know if it was a gift to the captain from Land Rover or whether they had some like old boys network thing going on. But Land Rover managed to get the captain of Invincible to agree to put a Land Rover on the on the ramp. So that's the part of the flight deck where the Harriers lift off. So they put parked this Land Rover up on the ramp and it, it looked it was quite a photo shot, you know, it was it, it was um yeah you know Land Rover must have just been loving it. And then uh it came from up up high, you know, Captain get that get that Land Rover down off off, off your flight deck immediately. It was obviously you know, a commercial publicity stunt, and I don't know how the captain got roped into it. I'm not sure if he was given the Land Rover or, or what it was, but yeah, Land Rover did well out of that. Yeah, I bet well, it did. Yeah, tell us about your driving then. That sounds like boy's own dream come true. Oh, honestly, like never been in a on a track, let alone in a race car in my life. I, you know, did these. So did things like skid pan, dual control. Uh, car controlled circuit driving go kart and there's loads of these that the tests get to do and i did quite well um so i didn't even know what i was doing um and yeah then was thrown into the british gt um series driving the jaguar f type svr gt4 car um for the last two years and it's been amazing with great coaching um you know me and steve have done really well we came second in the championship this year uh so yeah, we've done we've done really really well. Um, we were supposed to be racing in this year, however, there's no racing taking part, and mm. there are bigger things afoot, shall we say? I can't really go into uh, for the next four years as well. So, so this racing, you're you're on a track, mm-hmm. track race. Is is it a, is it a disability thing or is it is it no no That's professional racing, professional race series. Wow. So you've got Le Mans winners. Uh, World Endurance Champions, um, then you're a young up and coming uh, BRDC superstars. Yeah, it's all fully. What, oh, we were actually so me and Steve were uh, um, obviously me and Steve McCulley, Major Steve McCulley. He's um, he's an ex bootneck as well. He's medically discharged after being blown up on Hell at 14 in 2011 as well. So we're both registered disabled, right? So we put a blue badge on the back of our jag. <laughs> We got told to take it off though. The, the organisers got got funny about it. So they told us to take it off, but it was funny at the time. Yeah, it's like I've I've I've, re- I've read all Guy Martin's memoirs, and in the last one, he 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 st- he he 
formed a motor racing team that was headed up by his dog. Don't ask me why, but Guy Martin's a bit out there on the best of days, right? So yeah. he's named this motor racing team after his dog. And he's got stickers made up and he's put it all over like Suzuki. It might not be Suzuki, it might be Yamaha. I don't don't remember, but he's put it like all over their equipment and all all over his bike. And uh, yeah. he said that didn't go down well with the, with the race, you know, the the, the team organisers. No, I wouldn't. Um, what what kind of level do you is is this at, or what is there like a you know discipline for want of a better word? It's the highest level you can get in tin, tin top. So cars that aren't open wheeled, so open top. So yeah, it's the highest level you can get in Britain. Well, congratulations, mate. That sounds just such an achievement and also bloody amazing. Yeah, I mean, apart from it being this place it's cool as fuck, it's real good fun. And we and especially last year, we did really well. We did really well last year. Still had a um still like this is a brand new car that Jaguar built and it was dogged with problems and problems and problems especially the first year the second year we got on most of them out but the biggest problem is was the design flaw really it's just the rear suspension suspension geometry was just out so it was just a complete handful to drive all the time I mean, you got a five litre v8 you know and the road cars are five litre v8 but it's a four-wheel drive mm-hmm. but for the race series it has to be a rear-wheel drive so it's, it's a lot of fun and it's but you know i've only had one big crash uh well, I killed one of the cars, but yeah, that rattled the old bean can a little bit. Preferred turn well, it's the Grand Prix circuit turn one at Silverstone is um a right. I went left instead of concrete. Oh wall. my god! And are we allowed to put that in the pod? Are we allowed to talk talk about their um car problems in the podcast? They're not going to come and try and sue us, are they? Oh no, no, this is all well known. I mean, um, you know, it was because it was sort of thrown together. Um, they're not thrown together, but you know, it just it, it the first season was teething problems as any new car didn't have enough testing hours done on it, really. Um, but then, yeah, so we were the sort of test pilots for it, and then, yeah, year two, it was obviously loads, loads better. The only sort of um thing that we could change would be too much money though was the rear suspension geometry just to keep it a bit more stable at the rear. But and are you kind of a dab hand at it because you've been around sports cars since you passed your test? Um, I wouldn't say I was a dab hand. I can hold my own. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I'd say I've never been on a racetrack ever before I started this. Um, and yeah, I just sort of took to it, I suppose. And I, I'm, I'm a quick learner, so I think that that was why. Um, you know, I look at like so my times from preseason testing year one to like qualifying year two, they're miles apart. Literally, like oh, come on, leaps and bounds. Um, then it is it's good good racing brilliant can i get an invite to come and watch you race next time yeah yeah sure i'll bring my uh i'll bring my i'll bring my producer and we'll bring all the cameras and everything it could be could be wicked and it's an yeah. it's an it's a inspirational story in itself and that's what i'm all for that you know yeah okay well it's uh I guess the last thing I should ask you is what else is going on in your life that you can share or are you just, obviously we're all taking oh, well, it easy at the minute. So, I've, so as I mentioned, uh, Fox, he's put me in touch with his ghostwriter. So I'm doing uh, a book, um, just my life story sort of thing. Uh, what else am I doing? So I've got uh, another project in the pipeline where 
sort of likening um, the difficulties that veterans can have transitioning from military service into civilian life, um, both jobs and mentally, there's a huge um, similarity between professional sportsmen, uh, men and women, uh, doing the same thing when the game's over, say 30 year old or injury and their career short. Um, you're not talking about Premier League or Championship level footballers, for example, because they earn such money, it doesn't matter to them. But your Premiership rugby, your League One, League Two, in, especially down here in Exeter. Um, so uh, that's sort of a, a programme I'm going to be working on um, as well um, to help people transition from uh, professional sport into into real life, if you want to call it that. Um, who's, who's running that one or overseeing that one? Me. No, I mean, which organisation? Is that your your own? Or? Yeah. yeah. Oh, well so they're working in closely with, uh, obviously, the RPA, the, the rugby lads. And uh, so it's an embryo stage, there, but they're all well aware of what we want to do, what we want to achieve, and uh, the, the PFA as well, um, so the football side of things. So we just start with rugby and football and in the southwest, and we're going to scale up as we, as we go. Um, so that's a, uh, a product... Um, a project for next year. Uh, what else are we doing? Uh, some, obviously, some racing stuff going on behind the scenes, the deals being done and stuff like that. Um, and I'm starting to go back into property development as well um, because that's, I mean, when the lads were 20 years old going off to Thailand for six weeks and somebody, like, I rather than do that, I bought a field and then I bought a house and stuff. So I did a right through property when I was younger. Do you invite people to follow you on any social media, or, or is? Or is that uh, I've, got, I've got I've got all social media. I say I, I don't really use um, Twitter anymore, um, uh, Instagram. I don't do Facebook either, but try to stay away from it because it just causes me aggro. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd I'd say to anybody in this world, if you can get away going through life without, so don't do it. Just don't. Yeah. It's just such a negative. You know, ju- it's. It's kind of different in my position because I'm always need needing to sort of reach out or be reachable. Yeah. Reachable. Or how, you can't really have an influence over people if you haven't got social media these days. But if you don't need yeah. it, I would never have it. Absolutely, would never have it. It's just absolute pants. Um, yeah, but I'm on Twitter. I'm Paul Vice MC, and on no, it's not. It's Commando Vice on Twitter and Commando sixteen sixty four on Instagram. So, right, yeah, well, Paul, just just stay on the line. I'm going to do an official goodbye. I've got a couple of things we can chat about af- afterwards. Um, yeah. So I would just say to you, mate, Paul Vice MC, Vicey, massive thank you for coming on the Bought the T-Shirt podcast. Uh, massive thank you for the example you've set. And I hope we can do some work at some point together in the future. And anytime you want to come back on the on the show, or if you want to come and join me on one of my live commando chats that I generally tend to do Fridays, you're more than welcome. I bet I bet my subs would have a million questions for you, mate. They really yeah. would. So uh, think about that. So thank you once again, mate. To everybody no at home, thanks for watching the Bought the T-shirt podcast. Massive love to you and your families. Look after yourselves. Friends, thank you for listening to the Bought the T-Shirt podcast. Please like, subscribe and share. And don't forget to follow me on social media. Username, 
Chris Thrall. Instagram, Chris.Thrall. Thank you.